Argument next to number 952024, Steve Martin, Lawyer III versus the Department of Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. In this case, the District Court used an unconstitutional process to achieve an unconstitutional result in the form of Plan 386. Before uh, commencing my argument, I would like to make a correction in my reply brief, which is important in that it's a reference to the record. On page 14 of the reply brief, I referred to the preclearance denial letter of the Justice Department as R18, uh, I'm sorry, as R13. That's actually in the record at R18, and the full text is at R18. I also would like to just briefly refer to the maps uh, which are attached to the briefs. Um, if I may, the first map we have is Appendix A to the reply brief. This is the legislatively adopted plan, which was approved by the Florida Supreme Court in 1992. It's called SJR2G. This is District 21 in yellow, uh, which is all encompassed within Tampa, Hillsborough County, Florida. The next map we have was the court-ordered plan as a result of the Justice Department's preclearance denial letter. Uh, they objected to it, although there was absolutely no uh, history of voting, uh, voting Rights Act violations against black voters in Hillsborough County, they, uh, they, they were covered under Section 5 because uh, in Hillsborough County they did not print ballots in Spanish as well as English. So there was no, there was no congressional finding whatsoever of any uh, Voting Rights Act violations against blacks in Hillsborough County. Uh, and this is in the record uh, at, um, let's see if I may. Okay, it's at record at R104, which I didn't put in my brief. R104, page 3, specifically states that. Uh, you can see that this district uh, extends into Pinellas County. This is Hillsborough County. It goes into Polk County. That's called the Polk County Finger. Uh, and we have the Your Tampa Bay. The district that the Florida Supreme Court approved that we're looking at now? This, what you're looking at is the, the, the district that the Florida Supreme Court approved under the duress of the Justice Department's letter. That's 4A of, of the brief, uh, the, of the blue brief? This is Appendix B to the brief on the merits for appellate. Yeah. And this is the one that was superseded by the district that is now in question? That's correct. This was the one that was challenged by the plaintiff in his lawsuit. So this is the one that was the result of the preclearance denial letter by the Justice Department. Sure, I had a question about the, the challenge and the choice of forum. You, you are attacking a, a decision of the Florida Supreme Court. And you come into a federal court to do that. Was there not a means by which you could have fought out your challenge to a district created by the Florida Supreme Court 
uh, in the Florida state system, so you wouldn't have the embarrassment of a federal court being faced with a decision of the Florida Supreme Court that it was impelled to reject. That could, could you have gotten a remedy by appealing to the state system rather than running to the federal courts? No, Your Honor, because this was a challenge based on uh, what the Justice Department had forced the Florida Supreme Court. But that doesn't tell me why you couldn't say, I mean, the Equal Protection Clause governs the state of Florida as it does the nation. Why couldn't you then go into the state court system to make precisely the argument made in the federal court? First of all, the Florida Supreme Court did not reserve jurisdiction over this issue. It reserved jurisdiction when it approved this district in 597 Southern 2nd. If you read the opinion of the Florida Supreme Court, it says, we reserve jurisdiction. But when it approved 330, at the insistence of the Justice Department, it did not reserve jurisdiction. I don't mean in that case, bring the case, bring another case in which you're saying, Florida Supreme Court, we know you've got precedent, but you were acting under the gun of the Department of Justice, so we want to free you from that thrall. Well, Your Honor, the only thing I can say is that uh, the plaintiffs had the right to contest this district in U.S. District Court and under the Voting Rights Act. Mr. Shapiro, I, I appreciate that you did, but there was a certain anomaly in you coming to a federal court to, in effect, override a decision of the state court and then say that the federal court has not been sufficiently respectful of the state authority. Maybe you haven't in, in coming to the federal court rather than the state court for the solution to your problem. Well, that, that issue was resolved in the trial court. There were motions. There were actually motions to dismiss filed by the uh, attorney general of the state of Florida asserting that position. Those were denied by the district court, and that was not appealed. Do you think you would have had much of a chance had you gone into a Florida trial court and said that what the Florida Supreme Court did was a mistake? I don't know that a Florida trial court would have jurisdiction in the Voting Rights Act uh, case, Your Honor. I'm, I just don't know. I don't think so. I think this would be exclusive jurisdiction in the federal district court, and, and Mr. Lawyer had a right to make a Shaw claim in the U.S. district court. Uh, and again, there was, a, there was a motion filed by the attorney general to abstain, to transfer because of the Grandy uh, litigation, which was in progress at the time. This, was, uh, this uh, district, th- this uh, plan was in the U.S. district court in the northern Mr. district. Mr. Shapiro, may I just clarify, is anybody now claiming that plan should be defended? Well, yes, the, the, uh, in fact, and that's a critical aspect of this case, is that the, at no time in this litigation did, was there ever an adjudication that this plan was unconstitutional. I understand, but is there anybody is, now claiming that it that, is constitutional? Yes, because what they're saying, they, they reserve... And, and this, if so, who? The Attorney General, uh, I'm sorry, the state appellants, appellees, specifically in their settlement agreement, said, we do not acknowledge that 330 is unconstitutional. And we have a right, if, if the settlement plan was rejected, they, they retained the right to contest that 330 was unconstitutional. And that is a key aspect of this case, in that there was never an adjudication of, of liability that, that 330... Well, I thought in this court, though, they don't contest that it's unconstitutional. I believe they do. They, they, they do not concede that 330 was unconstitutional. But how, how does that bear on the arguments you're trying to make? Uh, it doesn't bear on the, the arguments. 
I, I, I do not, they do not admit that 330 is unconstitutional. But then why don't we go to the district which, which basically we're talking about here? That's right? correct. This is 386. This is the settlement plan that was approved by the federal court. Now, you can see what happened with the map that was produced at the, the quote, fairness hearing. There's no political subdivisions that are even included in this. So you talk about disrespect for political subdivisions. Here's Tampa Bay. It's a huge body of water. It's, it, although there's the shoreline, which is depicted, it doesn't really reflect which, which, which portion uh, of Pinellas County. And Pinellas County is over here. You don't know that because it's not on here. Manatee we can't County, tell where Tampa Bay is. Yeah, well, that's the whole purpose of our map. We have enhanced the map. We now know where Tampa Bay is. This is a rather large body of water. Now, if you, if, I'm sorry everybody can't see it, but this is, you can now see the contours for the first time of the district. The district is a tiny portion of Pinellas County over here. I'm referring now to Appendix D to the brief on the merits for the appellant. This is in... That's where St. Petersburg is, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. St. Petersburg is over here, and that is the portion of the, of the uh, Pinellas County. That, this is all Pinellas County. They chose this portion of Pinellas County. Now, what they did was they eliminated that part that went over to Polk County, but they retained this at the insistence of the Justice Department. Now, if you look at this little spit of land here, this, this was included as well. So it goes all the way across, but if you look back at the plan that was presented to the court, it looks like one contiguous, compact piece of land. But so this is the lake, is what you're saying. Yes, sir. And you're so, suggesting that the judges down there didn't know where Tampa Bay was. Well, I don't know. Uh, Judge Joselat said, well, we assume there's no houseboats there. Uh, that's what he said in, at the fairness hearing. Well, there are, no, there are a lot of fish there, and they don't vote. Uh, but but as, as, as we have made, as Mr. Lawyer made clear, this is only part of the picture, though. The, the shape of this map and the irregular uh, aspect of it. Is that it, unusual in Florida to have a district separated by uh, a body of water? Well, it, it is not unusual to be separated by a body of water, but it's a totally different proposition when, there, when a district has to be, a piece of land has to be in some district, say in an island, and the Florida Supreme Court stated this in their original decision. They said, look, in Florida there's a lot of water, so just because a district encompasses water doesn't necessarily make it non-contiguous. It's another proposition for the district to artificially reach over this huge body of water for the specific exclusive purpose of including black voters in order to boost the population of the entire district. And that was the exact purpose of the, the designers of this plan, was to, was to go across at this highly dense black community in Pinellas where they, where they had been in their own district. In fact, it's truly emblematic of this case that if you look at 21, whereas under their plan that they presented to the court, the number 21 was in yellow, now the two is submerged in water. So, that it's, so they have jumped across Tampa Bay and, and taken these counties, which, which used to be in other districts. They were in other districts. But you're not claiming now, as I think was the case in the earlier district, that they put together rural areas with urban areas on both sides of the rivers or, or the, the bay. No. As a matter of fact, that was eliminated, this finger. But when you create a monster, you can cut the fingers off, it's still a monster. This finger was cut off that went to, to Polk County, which was rural. But the NAACP opposed the plan of joining uh, Pinellas County over here because they said that there's no, not even a cohesive politi a, a black community in the Tampa Hillsborough area, much less the Pinellas area. 
These, they, they, they opposed it. But what the Justice Department did was it insisted that in order to create an additional majority district, that they must join the, the populations. I of, thought this wasn't a majority. It is not a majority, but the purpose was to create a majority. And in why fact, did the NAACP oppose it. What was what was? Why did they think that would harm the interests of the black voters? Because they they were correct. This plan. Now this is this is striking. Sixty-four percent of all Pinellas County's blacks are now in Plan 386. Even more, 74% of Manatee County's blacks are in the plan. So they bleached, and the NAACP said, look, you're bleaching the surrounding areas of their influence because you're taking a pocket of black voters and you're forcing them into that plan where they don't belong. Now, the Justice Department has admitted... Before you leave there, may I just ask, does the NAACP, is they a party to the appeal? They don't challenge it now, do they? No, they are not a party to this appeal, and they were not involved in this litigation. But in the, here's the point. When the Florida Supreme Court considered the idea, the insistence of the Justice Department, that they cross Tampa Bay to pick up this pocket of black voters, the Florida Supreme Court, in the 601 Southern Second uh, uh, copy, said, but, but these... These, this is not a compact uh, group of black voters. Mr. Shapiro, let me understand. I think you were yes. talking about the NAACP opposition to the plan that the Florida Supreme Court adopted, the one that we that's, saw before with the finger in the That's hole. correct. And, and that was a concern with packing in, into that district, right? This plan, that's correct. But the, we have nothing to say that the NAACP opposes the plan that the... No. Approved, no, we don't. Court but, what we, but those comments that they made before the Florida Supreme Court are directly relevant to this case because they said, they said to the, the court, they objected to any plan, any plan which would cross Tampa Bay and join these populations. But the, they the objected because to do so was packing. That's correct. And if the packing is now less, I don't know that it follows that they still find it objectionable. You've only got a, your district is what thirty some odd percent. It's thirty six percent black. So I don't I, know that they're. I, I don't know that we can infer that there's that they would still object when well, fact or that it makes any so. difference whether they object or no, not. I, I'm just pointing that out to say that that the, there was a substantial that the Florida Supreme Court was saying we do not believe that we are obeying our traditional this neutral districting principles by doing this, but we're doing it because under duress of the Justice Department... I'm sorry to get you into this, Mr. Shapiro. Yes, I was just curious. You shouldn't waste a whole lot of your time on it. I was just curious as no. to okay. why the NAACP would seem to be on the other side of this. Okay. I understand well, it now. Could, yes, could you explain uh, what your position here is? You say you never consented to this final plan. That's correct. 386. We and never consented to it. That you've never agreed with it and that you did not get relief at the state level and you assert that the plan... 386 violates this court's constitutional standards. That's correct, and it does so for several reasons. Number one, the, the, this was called a hybrid consent decree. That's what the majority of the court called this. The notion of a consent decree, however, is you have to have consent. Mr. And, and your client did not consent, That's although correct. was a party below. That's correct, and he objected to it. He objected ad nauseum to 386, and he insisted upon an adjudication that 330 be declared unconstitutional. What the court did was, instead, it made a conscious decision that instead of actually adjudicating 330 unconstitutional, that it would submit the matter to mediation. And that the purpose of the mediation was to allow the parties 
to come up with a, a, a remedy or a substitute plan. The problem is that doesn't end run around the Florida legislature, which in the traditional cases at this point has said over and over and over, including Miller, this court has said that it's the province of the state legislature in the but first instance. Is it not true that if there had been a finding of violation and then after hearings that the court imposed this plan, you would still make precisely the same objections you're making now? Absolutely. So if you win, look, you started by saying this is not a good plan, the new plan. You yeah, win or you it, lose. It, it, right. it violates so the that's, way it was yeah, done. I, I understand. Okay. Let's suppose, I'm sorry. Suppose we were to say that this new plan violated the Constitution, you know, the cases we've held. That you'd win, that'd be the end of it, right? Yes, sir. Right. Now suppose we were to say the opposite, that you lose, that this plan's okay constitutionally. Now, is that the end of this case as far as you're concerned? I would, take, I would take the position that Mr. Lawyer, that's a complicated question because in a usual consent no, because you could say now that this is what you really wanted, uh, you wanted an adjudication of whether this plan is good or bad. That's right. And that would be el eliminate a whole set of complex procedural issues. So what I think you're going to say is no, that isn't the end of it. No. Okay. <laughs> now, if that isn't the end of it, why not precisely? Because now what you're doing is you're attacking the procedure. So even if this is a good result, the procedure was wrong. That's, it's wrong on both counts. The procedure was wrong. Because the footprint of the federal judiciary, in this case the district court, was put on the, the uh, process and a co coercive order was entered without any adjudication. All right. Now, my question on that is this. Suppose that four people, Mr. Scott, Mr. Herbert, Mrs. Sims, and Mr. James, and your client, five people, now an imaginary case. They well, sue no. somebody. Imaginary case. Those five people sue somebody for something. Yes, sir. And they want an injunction. And uh, now, for, yeah, they want an injunction. I'm just uh, making up a case. Okay. They sue somebody, Mr. Mr. Uh, White, they sue, okay? Mm -hmm. And they say, Mr. White, you're doing a bad thing here. And he says, no, I'm not. And now they say four of the five, not your client, but the other four say, we'll settle. White says, I won't settle if I have to admit I was wrong. Huh, we won't make you admit it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so four of them settle with Mr. White. And the judge then simply enters a decree embodying their settlement, which doesn't admit liability. Yes. Common garden variety every day of the week. The fifth person doesn't agree. Yes, sir. Well, I can understand why the fifth person could attack the merits. He could say, Mr. White, you're doing a bad thing still. But I don't understand how that fifth person could object to the fact that the other four have settled with Mr. White. The answer to your question is that a non-consenting plaintiff cannot have substantive issues resolved against them in the, in the context of a consent decree. Well, doesn't it happen every and, and day of the week that people no. are in cases where they have ten plaintiffs, nine of them settle, the judge looks it over, he says this is fine, the tenth one doesn't agree, so the judge says, okay, tenth one, you don't have to agree, you can maintain your suit, but I'm entering the decree as to the other nine, it's fair. As to the other nine, but Mr. Lawyer lives in 386, and in fact, he's the only plaintiff in this case who had standing to challenge 330. But didn't the district court rule against his him on the merits? Exactly. It's well, a coercive order. Yeah, and they, well, they couched it in terms of a consent well, decree. But you've been arguing now for 20 minutes. You've only got 10 minutes left. And uh, you challenged the decree on the merits, yes, I say. Why don't you get to that part of your... I, I will. The, the 330 itself, uh, 386 was approved by the court. Now, what our position is on this case is that, uh, as I said, the original uh, district, 330, was never declared unconstitutional, but the, 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 it was the product of coercion by the Justice Department. Now, what, what happened here is 
that why, why does that bear at all on the validity of, of the most recent plan, the, the court-ordered plan? Because, it absolutely does, because the coercive order of a federal court is based upon adjudication. A federal court can only order a remedy when there has been an adjudication or there has been some admission of liability. Here there was never an admission of liability. Mr. Shapiro, since you are making much of this point, uh, Mr. Lawyer um, submitted a statement together with Plaintiff Scott and others, a statement of the case, representing to the district court as a result of this court's decision in the Miller case there are no issues of law to be decided by the court in this matter. Accordingly, the only issue which would remain for the court to decide at the trial in this matter is the issue of the appropriate remedy. Now, it seems to me that your first point about how the court has to declare the old district unconstitutional, this is a stipulation that your client joined and said, court, we all agree. There's nothing for you to decide but the remedy for this constitutional violation. By the remedy, he meant how much time and this, how much time the court should give the legislature to decide what the replacement plan would be. He did not specify that, that the court should actually decide what the plan should be. So he, didn't, he said the remedy, meaning how much time to give the court, how, how much time to give the legislature. Accordingly, the only issue which should remain for the court to decide at the trial, at the trial, he had the issue of the appropriate remedy. Do you have a trial on how much time to give the... There was never a trial period in this case. But I'm just reading the stipulation trying to find out what that means. He One meant thing by... says there's no issue of law dividing the parties. There's only the question of the appropriate remedy, and that's for trial. What he meant by that was that he... The remedy meaning the court should determine, assuming that there's an unconstitutional district, the court should then determine how it's supposed to act, and it's supposed to act by referring it back to the legislature. Well, I, I, I'm still so confused by your position here. Do you want this court to, to just focus on the fact? No. The, wait a minute. You didn't even hear the question, and you've already answered it. Do you want to hear the question uh, and then answer it? Um, you appear to be here arguing that the procedure followed by the federal district court was erroneous because it didn't first find unconstitutionality of Plan 330, and furthermore, it did not then await an opportunity for the legislature to adopt its own plan. So much of the argument centers on that. On the other hand, do you have an argument here at all yes. to the effect that, irrespective of that, what the court ended up with by virtue of the agreement of the other parties other than lawyer? Uh, is itself unconstitutional. Yes, I'll get to that I right mean, now. Do, you, do you get to both of those arguments or not? Yes, I'm just do. so confused. Yes, we do. In fir in what happened in this case, the court, in approving Plan 36, did not adequately apply the Miller standards. They, they held, inst instead of uh, determining and applying those, those, that case very carefully, they said, well, 386 is better than 330, so we're going to approve it. They said that it was benign and statute satisfactorily tidy because it, it was better than 330. That's not an, accurate, an adequate uh, application of Miller. Instead of using the community of interest analysis in Miller uh, in, in looking at the actual objective evidence in terms of what these communities are, they, held, they used the fairness hearing as a referendum and said, well, uh, we're, we're, because we have a fairness hearing and we've put a notice in the newspaper that anybody who wants to contest 386 
can come into court and do that. The court, in this case, the district court said, well, nobody showed up and objected to Plan 386, so therefore there must be a community of interest. The, the statistics uh, of the case are also uh, important. The statistics are that although 330 had 45% black voters, a VAP, this plan had 36%. So that a significant number of black voters were moved from their place over here in Pinellas County into District 21 when they normally would not be there. There was no direct, and, the, and one of the key aspects is, I, I know I've harped on this, but in, in adopting the procedure that the court used, it, and of using mediation in a secret sessions to design this plan, in effect, there is no report or any evidence of the exact uh, uh, factors that the designers of the plan used. Miller absolutely mandates. Wasn't there one point that uh, you had an opportunity to uh, examine the designer of the plan? Am I right that it was the, the state the, senate's expert that correct. was the designer? He, he, his report went into record, and I will tell you that Mr. Lawyer was threatened with sanctions in this case if he divulged the contents of the negotiation. Uh, did, was, did he have an opportunity to examine this witness and yes, say, yes, no, I don't choose to? Yes, he did. He did, but there was, he was uh, permitted to cross-examine the witness, but there, there was no oral testimony at that. There was no one under oath. There was no oral testimony whatsoever at the fairness hearing. And there were no findings of fact, which is the most critical aspect of this case, really. Did Mr. Lawyer have an opportunity to say, I want to call witness X, Y, and Z, I want to cross-examine, and was denied that opportunity? He wasn't denied the right to call witnesses, but there, this was not, this, the judge was asked at the pre-trial conference, is this going to be an evidentiary hearing? He said, I suppose you could find a judge somewhere who liked to uh, hear evidence, but no, this is not an evidentiary hearing. So to, he specifically ruled that this would not be an evidentiary hearing. So to say that Mr. Lawyer had a burden at that hearing to prove the, the district unconstitutional or that he failed well, to... Well, he was the plaintiff in the case. Yes, but the, but the plan was never properly before the court. But where, where was it that he had the opportunity to cross-examine? At the, the fairness hearing. So the, there was testimony taken there? There was no testimony. It was a hearing... And it was not an evidentiary hearing, and it's clear that Judge Mary Day stated at the pre-trial conference this will not be an evidentiary hearing. Well, then how, how would he have had a chance to cross-examine it? That's the point. But I thought you said he did have a chance. Well, he was given a chance by the judge. Um, uh, the, the, the Guthrie, the, uh, the person for the state, he didn't testify. He put his affidavit in the record. And Judge Joflat said, we'll consider that his direct testimony. If you want to cross-examine him, go ahead. And, and your client declined? Declined. But that was not an evidentiary hearing. So to it say... It's certainly the next best thing. Next best thing. But plan, he had no burden to prove that Plan 386 was unconstitutional because Plan 386 was never properly before the court because they did an end run around the legislature. It was never referred to the legislature. Therefore, to say that he had a duty or a burden at all at that hearing is incorrect. He had no burden under Miller or anywhere else to prove that that district was unconstitutional. Was the judge not told by the representatives of the legislature that the legislature just wasn't going to do anything about this? Well, that it had done its thing in the decennial whatever, and that the article of the Constitution that you cite didn't apply except at the 10-year redistricting? Everybody, including the Attorney General of the State of Florida, expected and stated to the district court that, this, that the state legislature had the right to convene. In fact, the, the district court was asking for status reports. 
But the fact is, the state legislature never had to, was never triggered a special session because there was no adjudication that the original district was unconstitutional. I, I took what went on as simply an indication that at least unless and until the extant district was declared unconstitutional, the legislature, simply because of the existence of a lawsuit, had no intention of creating a new district. Exactly. What the court was saying was because of Miller versus Johnson from the U.S. Supreme Court, we note that the Florida legislature has not spontaneously convened itself to rectify the situation. Aren't no. those matters of state law? I mean, no. Whether or, not the state, whether or not a state of Florida has the legal power to agree with the court to change its district with these representatives present or not would seem a question of state law. I don't see what's the question of federal law. Because this court has made clear repeatedly that this is a matter that is to be reserved for the states in the first instance. Now, but I mean, if, if, in fact, a court introduces a decree agreed upon by our four plaintiffs and their defendant, Mr. White, whether Mr. White has the power to make that agreement to the decree is a matter of Mr. White, a matter of the state. Why is it federal? It's federal because the court has made clear that this is a matter which is to be resolved first by the state. It's a U.S. constitutional issue of federalism. It's a federalism issue that Mr. Lawyer had a right to have his state legislature make that decision in the first instance as a matter of federalism, but also as no, a matter thank of... You. I think you've answered the question, Mr. Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Toronto? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the equal protection holding of the District Court should be affirmed, we suggest, because there is ample evidence to find, under this Court's recent decisions, that race did not predominate over, did not subordinate other districting principles in the design of Plan 386. And the Court should find no federalism problem here, because the District Court, acting only after giving the legislature an opportunity to convene, then properly allowed authorized state officials to resolve the serious federal claim here by proposing a lawful districting plan, giving appellant an opportunity to challenge the lawfulness of that Did plan. the court below ever enter an order saying, uh, and I hereby uh, give 60 days or 90 days or something in which the legislature can act, or did he just accept somebody's uh, statement that... Uh, the legislature wasn't going to be called into special session. I think it's a combination of, of those. In, in July of 1995, after this court decided in Miller, there was a status conference at which everyone recognized this claim had now become substantially more risky than it had been before. Um, part of what the district court did was to enter an order directing the state parties every 30 days to file a piece of paper in the court saying whether the state legislature would be convened to address what was now recognized to be a serious federal claim. But that had not yet been adjudicated to be an unconstitutional district. That, that, that's right. It's uncontested, is it, is it not, that the legislature had no opportunity after this court had determined that the district was unconstitutional and therefore could not be used to adopt on its own a, a new district. This court, the court did not determine that Plan 330 was unconstitutional. So why should the legislature adopt a new district? Because Unless and until the court does that. Because I think the legislature, represented by the, the speaker here and the president of the Senate and the attorney general, was fully aware that there was a serious risk of invalidation. But legislatures don't enact new legislation just because there's a serious risk. 
and some of the members of the legislature did not think that these individuals had the authority to commit the legislature to a whole new districting plan. Well, I don't, I don't think there's anything in the record. There's a letter of, in the record from one senator, isn't there? That letter was not in the record. It was rejected because improperly filed. And had that issue ever been joined, which it has never been joined, there is plenty of evidence that we would have submitted had the issue ever been raised to, to support the authority. No, that, I think that there, authority has not been questioned. I think here. there is a serious burden on, on whoever is taking the word of a couple of members of a state legislature that the state legislature, as a body, concedes to redistricting for the state, I think there's an enormous burden to show that that representation that they can speak on behalf of the legislature is true. And even if there's nothing else in the record, I, I cannot imagine approving a, a federal judge's acceptance of, of the majority leader's statement just, just on its face. Um, it was not simply submitted on, on its face. Exactly the same statements were made to the Florida Supreme Court after the preclearance was denied to the original plan that the legislature would not convene, and therefore judicial action was going to be required. No, I'm, I'm not talking about the statement that it would not convene. I accept that. I, I, I'm not surprised that it would not convene. Its prior plan was still constitutional as far as it knew. I'm talking about the assertion that I and, and, and one other person have the authority on behalf of the entire legislature of Florida to agree to redistricting of the state. That's an extraordinary assertion. Your Honor, I don't think it's extraordinary. I think state um, parties are defendants in federal courts all of the time. It is a matter of state law, what authority they have through whoever the party is to settle litigation. We've cited in our brief a number of authorities to show that the Florida authorities, including the Attorney General and the state parties, the, the state legislative parties, did have that authority, and that um, that has never been contested here. The district court here took great care to assure itself that it was not um, allowing itself to be used to usurp authority. Well, and I think it, it is one thing to settle litigation, that is, to agree on behalf of the legislature that the state will not oppose the judicially, the judicially imposed uh, districting. That's one thing. But what, but what is being asserted here is that this is not judicially imposed districting that this is districting that was, in fact, uh, expressing the will of the Florida legislature, which, to my mind, is an important thing if the prior district was never declared unconstitutional. I think, I think what's going on here is that there is, by the time the summer of 1995 comes around, there is a very serious federal challenge. Authorized state officials, I don't think, are required or should be stripped of the authority to resolve that litigation voluntarily as other um, defendants can resolve their federal, federal claims. That seems to me to turn federalism principles upside down. Consent decrees are routinely, customarily, as this court said in Mayor against Gagne, entered without liability findings against state defendants, and it would, I think, strip them of an important authority. Would the state parties, as, as you understand state laws, have had authority to concede that the uh, Senate-approved plan, that the legislatively-approved plan was unconstitutional? Would have had authority, yes, as li litigating authority, absolutely. They did, they did not make that concession. Yet. They did not make that concession, that's right. And the issue, the issue in the district court was never pressed whether, had Judge Joe Flatt's view pre um, prevailed, if the court had agreed that a liability judgment had to be entered, whether we would have accepted that as a condition to the entry, entry of the remedy. That issue was simply never presented. Well, it, frankly, looking at the series of maps, it didn't strike me as uh, terribly important if we were to say the district judge should have found the Plan 330 unconstitutional before deciding which plan to adopt. 
Absolutely. And if it went back, the court could probably make that finding. It is uh, a most unusual-looking district. And chances are the court would say Plan 330 was unconstitutional. Therefore, I have to adopt a plan, and the plan I'm going to adopt is 386. When I say that the issue was not joined, the state appellees are prepared to accept and were prepared to accept back in November November 20th a judgment entering a finding of liability without conceding the constitutional issue. Um, It was not pressed at the point and not necessary. So we would accept an affirmance under Judge Joe Flatt's ground. What we do think is that this district, the 1995 district, is constitutional under this court's standards. And all of, all of what I think this court said last term in the Bush case and the Shaw case indicates that there is a variety of evidence that bears on that question. Here the evidence is partly what there is and partly what there isn't. What there isn't is any block-by-block separation of races. What well, there isn't if, if, if there were a party, as there appears to be here, to the proceedings below who didn't consent, uh, is that party entitled to an evidentiary hearing before the district court says, yes, I'm going to go with 386? Absolutely, and he got it. He was invited to put on evidence. The, the reference to... Did the court say this is not an evidentiary hearing? Absolutely not. He's taking one quote... That's wrong. That's that, wrong. That, that's not in the record. That is, that is not in the record. He is referring to a statement at the end of the November 2nd status conference in which the Justice Department attorney said, I'm a little confused, Your Honor, about how you want to handle the, the, the hearing that's coming up. Do you want us to put on oral evidence? And the judge said, I suppose somebody, some judge here wants to hear oral evidence. And what happened was, of course, that all of the affirmative evidence of the state was put on in writing. What happened then was that Mr. Lawyer was invited several times. Put him on the stand and cross-examine him. Ask him what his instructions were. Ask the court, him what the court never said this, is, this will not be an evidentiary hearing? Never said this will not be an evidentiary hearing. And at the hearing... Counsel here has just misrepresented the, flatly the, the He's statement. taking one quote that was addressed to the Justice Department lawyer... Did the quote say this will, this will not be an evidentiary hearing? No, and I don't even think that the quote, as, uh, as he quotes it, says it. Well, in, in, in any event, uh, his client was off, offered a chance to cross-examine you know, most people would think of that as an evidentiary hearing, I guess. Absolutely. He was, he was said that the man who sat down with the computer, he's, he has said in writing what, what he did. Put him on the stand. Ask him what his instructions were, what your data were. Did you use race as a proxy for or disproportionately? Um, did you have more racial data than non-racial data, as in the Texas case? Did you try to draw things block by block? What's your information about what's inside the district and what's outside the district? Do the people who live along the coast... Um, their boats, are they the same socioeconomically as the people who live between the freeways here did in, the court in indicate, uh, None of that was done. Did the court indicate in this hearing that there would be any restrictions on the matters as to which um, Mr. the appellant could inquire? Yes, the one, the one restriction that was pressed by Judge, Chief Judge Joe Flatt was a restriction about um, asking, about putting the Justice Department attorney on the stand. Um, and that, I think, is actually a, a perfectly proper discretionary evidentiary ruling. There is a general rule that says you don't make a lawyer a witness in the case absent compelling need. Um, before you've examined the man who drew the district, before you've examined the state officials who actually negotiated it, you couldn't possibly show a compelling need. And there was no, no um, uh, showing of, of that sort by, by appellant. Appellant was allowed to submit statistics, allowed to submit a different plan, allowed to submit his own maps, some of these maps. Um, He was invited to put on any evidence he had. And under, I think, this court's decision in Local 93, it is very clear that once the other parties to the case agreed on a decree, 
That couldn't, that by itself couldn't adjudicate his rights, but he had an opportunity to adjudicate his claim that this district was unlawful. And I think this district cannot be found unlawful. It is not a safe minority district. It is um, geographically and economically shares a real community of interest. There's plenty of evidence to that effect. Um, there, this, is, this is not a district that had the kind of process flaws of either being dictated by the Justice Department. This was negotiated in a wide-ranging discussion, including appellant's co-plaintiffs, who, after the fact, came in and said, this is not a district that is race-based. Mr. Toronto, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to, uh, to accept your, your, your analysis as far as whether the district had it been adopted by the legislature, would be unconstitutional. My problem with this case is, is I, I think it, it, it's a serious uh, matter to say that when the Florida legislature as a whole has not been put on notice that its existing, that its existing uh, districting is unconstitutional and has not been given an opportunity after that notice to itself draw a district, which might have been like this, but then again it might not have. It isn't enough for me that this district be constitutional. I also would like, like it to be the district that the voters of Florida wanted, to the extent that the federal court could have given them an opportunity to, to select it. Your Honor, I, I, I don't agree with that rule, because I think that the proper federalism rule in this context is one that leaves it to state law what officials have the authority to engage in what kind of settlement of litigation. And, this, and, and that's what is un, undisputed here. These state officials, the attorney Toronto, general... is there anything in the decree that would prevent the Florida legislature today from re redefining the, the district? No, not at all. An appellant is free to contact any senator or, or representative. Is, is there anything in the record indicating objections on the part of legislators to this action? Um, the, the following is either in or was attempted to be gotten in the record. There was this one letter that, that Justice Scalia referred to from one senator who sent a letter ex parte to each of the three judges, one, one of which was returned under the order of, the, of the, the court. And he said, I don't think the Senate can represent, can speak this way in, in, in litigation. Otherwise, there is nothing on, on that issue. There is a public comment from the former senator at this hearing, the former senator of this district, objecting to, to the, the plan. Was there an inquiry by the court? Did the court, on what did the court base its assurance that, that it had the, uh, uh, the authority to accept this as the will of the Florida legislature? Well, so, several things. The, the briefing that was submitted in support of the plan, in particular, I think the, the fullest brief was by the United States. Um, cited the sta state statutory authority um, as, as interpreted in various decisions giving the attorney general the authority to resolve litigation. There's an affidavit in the joint appendix from the Speaker of the House citing the House rule that specifically... So you didn't, need, you didn't even need the senators. It would have been enough to have the attorney general. The attorney general could, could redistrict the state or could, could uh, um, agree to it. I think as a matter of Florida law, that is probably correct. I think as a district court is being asked to enter a decree that resolves a serious claim and, and puts in place a new plan subject to any change that the legislature want to, wants to make, it needs to inquire into all the circumstances. It's a harder case if the House and the Senate both came in and said, we disagree about what should be done. Um, that's not this case. Here, all relevant state um, authorities are speaking with the same oh, wait, there, was, there was that statute. Now, what else was there besides the, the statute Flor that gave the, the Attorney General authority? Florida, a Florida decision, particularly the Abramson decision, which we cited in our brief, that says state agencies can violate their state statutes 
when necessary to um, settle a serious claim against against them. Um, there is the... I don't the, see the relevance of that. There was no state agency uh, uh, here, was there? Well, they, the, the, the state as a party itself is, I, I think the form of the question is, could it change its state statute by voluntarily settling through the Attorney General um, a, uh, a serious piece of federal litigation? I think the Abramson decision under Florida law is, is supportive of that. There is um, the, uh, the affidavit of the Speaker citing and attesting to the authority under the House rule. And then there was a series of representations, I think two or three times, in which the attorney for the Senate was asked by the court, um, are you sure that you really have authority to be um, representing the Senate here? And he said, yes, I'm absolutely sure, I'm absolutely sure. And had there been a contest of, uh, about that, there would have been still more evidence in oh, the form of is, petitions. Is, is this a matter, though, perhaps of federal law? This court seems to have indicated its position that a district court, before drawing its own plan to replace one that appears to be invalid or has been found to be invalid, uh, should give the state legislature an opportunity to address it. Now, could we mean as a matter of federal law that the full legislature should have an opportunity to draw up a plan I, I, and that we don't accept the notion that pursuant to settlement authority, the attorney general can come in and say, speaking on behalf of the state, we accept this. I, I think that the legislative opportunity was given over the course of several months. I don't think there was any doubt about... But it was not given within the context of a finding that uh, Plan 330 was invalid. That's right. But the price of that rule would be to, be, to, be, to insist that states in voting rights cases may never voluntarily resolve their claims. In fact, they do on a number of occasions. There's a consent decree in the Johnson against Grandy case. In I can certainly understand that the state and this court might be willing to accept the notion that the attorneys on behalf of the state could agree that the former plan was unconstitutional. Now let's go from there. Is it nevertheless a matter of federal law that the full legislature be given an opportunity following that to adopt the plan? Well, I, I think it is a matter of federal law that an opportun a proper opportunity to be given. I think it's also a matter of federal law whether there should be a rigid rule saying you have to have in this one class of cases mm -hmm. an adjudicate adjudicated violation. I think that that, in fact, strips states of an important authority that all other litigants have and doesn't answer Well, of course, uh, the concern expressed by this court in saying there should be such was a concern on behalf of the states that the federal court shouldn't intrude and take upon itself the job of drawing a legislative district without uh, finding a, a good reason for it to wit invalidity of what the legislature had put its task. But, but I think, it is, I, I think it, is, it is also a good reason that the, that the federal claim is very serious, that there is a, a, real, chan a real risk of, of the litigation. It's the same good reason that supports consent decrees without liability in all kinds of other cases against states. Well, this wasn't prisons. a consent decree, of course, because we have a petitioner here who didn't consent. This, it wasn't a consent decree. That's right. Insofar as the state is concerned, though, it is a consent decree. It's a consent decree between the four other plaintiffs and the state appellees and the other, and the other, other defendants. And by the way, the, the reason that is plain in this record for why the legislature was not going to convene 
has nothing to do with whether there had been an adjudicated violation. It has to do with a series of political problems in the state that I think Judge Merriday referred to in the October 26th hearing, that a whole series of important contentious vetoes are triggered for override the minute the legislature convenes, and that was not going to happen. I don't think there was any dif- that would have made any difference had there been an adjudica- adjudication. The same thing would have happened. Thank you for the opportunity. We're not going to do it. We think that this ought, ought to be resolved here. The only difference, therefore, that, that we're talking about on, in this regard is whether this um, declaratory judgment that Plan 330, the predecessor, is invalid, a, diff- a, a declaratory judgment that can't possibly make a difference to appellant who's already had that plan eliminated by court order. So your position is that as far as the state legislature and the state itself is concerned, that council had a right to waive any finding of unconstitutionality, and they did so, and the state had a right to waive any opportunity to redraw a district, and they did so. Is that your position, in essence? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Toronto. Uh, Mr. Gornstein, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, our position is that the settlement plan is constitutional and that the District Court did not violate any principles of federalism in approving it. On the constitutional question, I wanted to make three points. The first is that the District Court applied the correct legal standard in judging the constitutionality of the proposed plan. It correctly drew from Miller the principle that a plan is subject to strict scrutiny only when a challenger can show that race predominated in the design of the district. The second point I wanted to make is that district court findings of predominant motive are governed by the clearly erroneous standard of review so that the district court's finding in this case that the District 21 was not predominantly motivated by racial considerations is subject to review in this court only for clear error. The final point I wanted to make on the constitutional question is that the district court's subsidiary findings show that its ultimate finding on predominant motive is not clearly erroneous. And those findings are that the district is sufficiently regular by Florida standards to avoid any suggestion that race predominated, that the district includes a genuine community of interest, and that the district affords to any candidate, without regard to race, the opportunity to to be elected. Now, those findings are all supported by the record and are together sufficient to support the district court's ultimate finding that race did not predominate. On the federalism question, we think it was entirely appropriate for the district court to resolve the litigation without making a formal adjudication based on the state's consent. It it is one of the the principal reasons that parties enter into settlements is to avoid a formal adjudication, to avoid findings of liability. But how can it do so as against somebody who didn't consent to with the petitioner here? How can it avoid some opportunity to have evidence put on and conduct a full inquiry into the validity of Plan 386? It certainly can uh, have, uh, it was required for there to be uh, an inquiry into the validity of 386. What there was not required was an inquiry into the validity of 330. Well, but the, the appellant is in the position of suggesting uh, that there be redistricting or that the old district be approved. And uh, 
faces, as the court faces, a difficult task in determining what are legitimate criteria for districting, uh, what are community interests, what are legislative preferences. And uh, it seems to me that this, uh, the, the court must exercise its discretion to have before it and to have available to the parties the legislative policies, the legislative determinations as to what legitimate district criteria are. And by uh, not referring this to the legislature and accepting too quickly, perhaps, uh, the representations of uh, state officials, uh, the court and the, and the appellant were deprived of that datum, that, that, that body of, of, of guidelines that are necessary to make uh, appropriate and legitimate districting uh, determinations. Well, I think that the legislature did have ample opportunity to convene and to legislate a plan if it had wanted to. It was faced with more than a very serious claim under Miller, and I think everybody in the legislature must have been aware that the Florida Supreme Court's plan was extremely vulnerable. And still, it did not convene in legislative session, and instead what it did is its authorized representatives, the Speaker of the House and the, the President of the Senate, are authorized to, to conduct litigation, and they negotiated uh, a settlement. Now, the that settlement says that it shall only... Your basis for that is you can give me no citation of Florida law, at least as far as the Senate is concerned. That's correct. That, that was strictly on, on the basis of a re representation made. That, that was the determination made. And on the basis, uh, basis of representation of, the of one person, the, the, well, it was the, it was the ability the, of the Senate to participate in redistricting of the state is, uh, is disregarded by the court. I'm, I'm, I'm and worried I about that. I, 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 to, to go on to what the, the legislative opportunity was here, there were then negotiations. Nothing prevented the legislature during that entire time that negotiations were ongoing to intervene, convene, and submit a plan. Then there was a settlement agreement presented to the district court, and that settlement agreement says that this shall only remain into a, in effect unless and until the legislature formally enacts a different plan in compliance with federal and state law. Still, now there was a remedial hearing held in November. The district court did not approve this till March. There was a long period of time in which the legislature knew that if it did nothing, the, the district court had before it a proposal that it could resolve at, every time, at any time to resolve this litigation. Still, the district court did nothing, and it has done nothing since to change the plan, even though the settlement itself says that it only remains in effect unless until the legislature formally adopts a different plan in compliance with state and federal law. Do you agree that um, Mr. Shapiro uh, erred in stating that the court below at its hearing on 386 uh, said it would not be an evidentiary hearing. Let me break that down into two parts. There is the pre-hearing before the remedial hearing, and then there is the remedial hearing. Let me address the pre-hearing first. An inquiry was made to the by the Department of Justice. Do we have to submit live evidence or can we introduce it in other ways? And I, I will quote uh, from that. This is all people sitting around in the judges' chambers, perhaps, or in open court? It's a, it's a pretrial conference, and I'm not sure whether it was an open court or not, but I think it probably was. And are you going to read from the record? I am reading, and this is uh, page 31 of the hearing from November 2nd, 1995. And I don't have the uh, record site to that. I'm, I apologize for that. but. Um, 
The presentation that the proponents of the settlement agreement are to lead off with is that the court's contemplation that it be evidentiary in nature should we be prepared to put witnesses under oath. I think Mr. Hill might have mentioned that he thought it might suffice simply to have lawyers present the plan, but if a full evidentiary presentation is preferred, we would be prepared to do that. It is a matter of figuring out what the court's preference is so that we can prepare accordingly. The answer comes, I assume there are some judges somewhere who simply enjoy hearing evidence no. Now, I take that to be a response that the proponents did not have to put on live evidence, that they could rely on the attachments. I don't take that to be a preclusion of the appellant or anyone else who would have wanted an opportunity to present evidence at that hearing to do that. And I think when we get to the evidence, and now this is in the joint appendix at page 185 at the remedial hearing, the bottom of the page, Judge Joe Flatt says at the very bottom, Mr. Hill has summarized in effect what is in the record. There are affidavits in the record. If you want to examine Mr. Guthrie, you're free to do so or call any witness you want. I think it was quite clear at the remedial hearing that there was a full chance to put on evidence for the appellant. Now, if the appellant didn't think, had misunderstood that he was and thought he didn't have that chance before, he could have said something about that. He could have said, look, I didn't think that I was going to get that chance. I need more time. He didn't say anything like that. Maybe you can explain something to me about this record, because it does seem that in the beginning, the plaintiffs, everybody was trying to settle this. Everybody agreed that the plan was vulnerable under the old plan under Miller. And there was a stipulation that I read. And then it seemed at some point there was this harmony that prevailed about let's stipulate, let's mediate, broke down. But it's not clear to me how that happened. Well, I think Mr. the appellant in this case was not satisfied with the results of mediation. And at some point. Going into mediation, everybody was on board. Yes. With the idea that it would be a good idea to mediate. Yes. I think that the rule that there should be no precondition, that there will always have to be a liability finding, is extremely important in facilitating settlements. And it would deserve the principles of federalism, we would suggest, to make the states the only parties who could not settle cases without either a formal adjudication or an admission of liability. Because when an admission of liability is required, that is going to discourage in many cases voluntary compliance with the law. It is going to discourage states from entering into settlements because there are consequences to admissions of liability. So that the value of voluntary. Attorney's fees, I suppose, for one. I think that that would certainly dictate the result of attorney's fees, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Gorenstein. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.